It was a day of firsts, a day of firsts in the world. First sunrise, the first cool ocean breeze after a long hike, the first meal of exotic fruits and vegetables, a first uh, laugh, a first conversation, a first starry night sky. This is Eden, where all the firsts happened. And out of the voice of one wrapped around a tree, speaking to a woman who was considering a fate-filled bite, came the first lie. Those of you who memorized your King James language, you know well, ye shall not surely die. I invite you to take the Bible, Genesis chapter 3, We'll read it in the New International Version today, chapter 3, beginning with verse 1. This is the part in the story just between the serpent and Eve now. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the other wild animals the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God really say we must not eat from the tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good from evil. It is the first lie. You will not surely die. Your life would go on, Eve. Consider this. You could be more. It's, it's not really what your God has told you. Go ahead. You could live. It is not much different than the boldness that comes from Achilles. Those of you who like to read, read the Greek myths when Achilles takes his warriors out to battle and he says to them, do you know what is in front of you? immortality. Take it. It's yours. It is what the serpent is saying to Eve. You will not surely die. And I believe from this first lie on, humans have been wrestling with death. We have been struggling against the idea that we die. And I believe we have been fooled by the devil into thinking that we have more control over our lives than we actually do. Um, Yeah, we, we understand this is supposed to come to an end, but we also understand we have a lot of control. We make good choices, and good choices lead to positive outcomes, and positive outcomes lead to longevity, which is a lot of what we talked about last week. So we have a lot of control. We also understand, however, because we know from watching life, we're, we will die. So, so we write wills and we take out insurance policies and we sign medical directives and, and we make sure our estate is in place. One of the most grueling and honest conversations we ever had as a young family, my husband and I, was deciding who would care for our children if we died prematurely. Many of you have had that conversation and having to ask someone, would you be the one? So we know about death and we prepare for it somewhat, but then we go on and live. 
we take out a 30-year mortgage, and we sign 20-year student loan policies, don't we? We go on and live. We buy land by the Salton Sea because we know it'll be worth something someday. And those of you smiling are the ones that bought 20 years ago. We treat our bodies and our hair, however, as if the clock is turning back and there is an industry that's very grateful that we don't like aging and growing old. We say 60 is the new 40, 70 is the new 50. Did you hear that this week during the Golden Globe announcements? I heard it more times than I want to remember. And if we were honest, if it was an affordable, safe option and we could have our loved ones with us, many of us would turn in our diseased, aging bodies for a new model and we'd live again. To some degree, I believe we've let the devil persuade us that we have more control over our future than we do. We've let the devil deceive us again and again. Last week I said, in the Garden of Eden, the Apple story redefines everything. It is the foundation for Christian conversation. It mattered what happened there. And in this case, the species really does die. You die. I die. Those who came before us have died. Those who will come after until such time God calls an end to this. Humans die. The poet and pastor John Donne speaks accurately when he says, Death comes equally to us all, and when it comes, it makes us all equal. A pastor friend of mine heard we were going to be talking about death at Calamasa for a few weeks, three weeks, and he said, Death, huh? pastor in another part of the conference, he said, well, that's, that's interesting. While other churches are talking about how to be your best in 2007 and setting good goals for themselves, you all at Calamesa are going to talk about death. That's so cheery. <laughs> Let me know how it works for you, he said. We're going, going to talk about death for these reasons. This conversation is birthed out of living in community with you, out of watching us become ill and die, out of being at the hospital and walking through experiences with you. And very pointedly, last spring, it came to me this way in a conversation with the chaplain at Redlands Community Hospital, our guest speaker next week, Dr. Eldon Sproul, and I hope you can be here For about 20 years, he's been working at that hospital in particular, and he knows Adventist Christians pretty well, although he isn't an Adventist. It came clear to me, with permission I tell you this story, when Bob McAllister was in intensive care unit. And for those of you visiting today or newer to the church, Bob and Betty have been here a long time and and sit right here. And I spoke with Betty last night. She's not in her seat, but she knows we're speaking today. And uh, Bob... Bob was not doing well. We were in the intensive care unit, and it was time for the rounds that morning, the day before he passed away. The doctors had their conversation. The family asked a lot of questions, and the family held out hope until, until I believe we were gathered in this funeral service, that Bob really could and would survive, and God would do a miracle. And when that conversation was over, I had the chance to meet Dr. Sproul for the first time. I talked with him on the phone and, and um, was interested to meet him. 
We got to talk about many things, about his work there, about what it is to be a hospital chaplain and, and the things he witnesses. And then I finally got the courage to ask him. I thought, I have in front of me someone who's not one of us, but who observes us. Maybe he would answer this question honestly. I asked him, when it comes to death and dying and the end of life conversations, by any chance do Adventist Christians do this any better? Just a little? What is the song we sing? We have this hope. Do we do this any better, Dr. Sproul? And he looked at me, looked down at the floor and licked his lips, and he said, actually, no. You don't. Which surprised me some. You don't, and I think he meant a little bit the, the ahead of time part rather than the grieving and the, the afterwards recovery. I think he meant that which these, these hours and weeks leading into death, you really don't do them any better than anyone else that I observe. Which is why I invite you to be here next week as he talks about practices that we can engage in, real things we do as a community or as individuals with our God that help us move into death better, more simply, more at ease. It's out of this conversation that our, our sermons are birthed. Uh, we, we really don't like death, and we really don't do death much better than anyone else. I was taken by Art Buckwald this week, his death, the story of his death. Those of you who are enthusiasts of political satire, you know early in the week Art Buckwald died. Now, the New York Times is offering this new service. It used to be that they would interview people and collect ideas, and from those ideas they would write obituaries and, and uh, make profound statements from the now-deceased person. But the New York Times is now doing video obituaries. That is, for famous people or those they've decided have made a contribution in the world, uh, we'll never be asked, but, but they did a video obituary with Art Buckwald about six months ago. I just want to show you a small excerpt here, if you can hear and see this. When we talked with Art Buckwald in July 2006, he'd just come to his summer home in Martha's Vineyard, where he was working on his column and a new book. He hadn't expected to make the trip. He'd spent the winter and spring in a hospice for the dying. I had a bad kidney. We knew it was coming. And they said I had to take... Uh, dialysis. Dialysis. Well, I did for about 12 treatments. And then I got tired of it. I also lost my leg. I lost my leg. It had nothing to do with the kidney. But I was going to get gangrene. So I said, the heck with it. I don't want to take dialysis. I'm going to die. And my doctor said, that's your choice. It's not suicide. I said, well, what happened? He, I, he said, if you don't take dialysis, your kidneys stop working, and in two or three weeks, you go into a coma and you die. And I said, okay. 
Well, it turns out I went into a hospice which takes wonderful care of people who die. And I went in, and the whole theory was that I'd be in a nice place for three weeks and then die. Well, it turned out I was in a hospice for five months. And nobody knows why, but my kidneys kept working, and they're still working about the same as when I went into the hospice. Nobody knows. It's a medical mystery, and everybody's very happy about it. But I became some sort of a celebrity for death. Because once people discovered that I was in the hospice and I announced I would die, everybody showed up. And people came to the hospice and they didn't realize. Well, they came in, they were very nervous to see someone who was dying. And they couldn't believe it because I was up, I was laughing, telling stories, jokes. And they went away happy. <laughs> the most important thing about a hospice, and is the most important thing about the whole thing, is people are afraid of death. They're afraid of talking about death. And they don't know what to do about it. People are afraid of death, and they're afraid of talking about death. And so are we. And it was by Bob McAllister's bedside as the grandchildren started coming in the day before he died. And one by one kissing him, he looked at one side and looked down the other and at the foot of his bed all around surrounded by family, somewhat of a celebrity himself. And he said, well, you're all here. I must be dying. And we really don't like to talk about it. Is it true that Adventist Christians move into our deaths as anxious and fear-filled as most other people? Is it possible that we have even let the devil convince us a little more than we should have? That we have more power over this? That for some reason we might be in control and, and that really, when it comes to death and dying, we're not much different than anybody else? I reflected on the text we recite at funerals all the time, probably at Bob's, certainly at most funerals, Adventist funerals I've ever attended. In fact, when I was younger, I thought this was really an Adventist verse. First Thessalonians chapter 4, you all know, we don't want you to be ignorant or uninformed, brothers and sisters, about those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve as those who have no hope. You're supposed to grieve differently. We believe that Jesus died and rose again. And even so, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. This text is supposed to make a difference. Is it possible we've let the devil in on our hope? That's the question I'd like to ask today. Have we fallen for the lines in the Garden of Eden just like Eve did? And has it changed our perspective on how we move towards death. One thing that I think Eden 
and the experience of death and knowing that the species dies and our fear for it, one result of all of that that has happened is in our fear, we are silent. So the first point for today is that our silence doesn't change anything. My refusal to discuss death, your refusal to talk about death and dying, doesn't mean it won't happen. For this month and next month, someone else will die in this church and another funeral will happen. Our, our keeping quiet won't change anything. Our keeping quiet about the eminence of death for people who are living with the diagnosis are keeping quiet about sort of the uncontrollable things that happen in our world and, and how frail we are as humans. If you watched the storm that pounded West, uh, northern Europe this week that was brewing in the Atlantic and finally came aground and in Britain and in Ireland and in Germany, Amsterdam in France, country after country, this powerful storm toppled trains and one crane crashed into a building of school children. If the children hadn't all been eating lunch, the lunchroom was the only room that survived in that building. Just from the high winds, estimates are about 150 people are killed from fierce winds blowing in off of the ocean. Can't control that. Can't plan that. And our sort of choice to remain silent doesn't change that these things happen every day in our world. About 100, 150 of our academy students are over at the Hemet Church today, and you can ask them. Death even touches their age group. They know about serious illness among their classmates. They know about teachers and those who have died in the last few years. They're not even protected from this conversation. So removing our children when death is the topic or keeping them from funerals or from the bedside where grieving has happened, it doesn't really protect them from anything. Keeping silent or hiding from death won't make it go away. But on the contrary, giving voice to the unknown will diffuse it some. And diffusing it will probably be helpful because when tragedy comes, everything else in your world will stop. When personal tragedy comes, everything stops. And and I only have to look into a few of your faces and you can tell me it's the truth. When a tragedy happens in your life, your work won't matter. Your 401s won't matter. Where your children are in school and the next stage of development, it won't matter that Beckham's come to America and, and Hillary and Barack are running for president. None of it matters. When tragedy strikes, everything stops. And the question is, when everything stops, how will we respond? If we give voice to some unspoken fears, I believe it diffuses the anxiety that we have. If we begin to name them and state them, what is it that concerns us about death and dying? Call it by its name. Tell it to someone you live with or, or to a friend. What are your concerns and what honestly frightens you? Are, are you afraid? of? Have you made a difference in the world? Are you worried because you haven't done everything you'd like to do? Are you worried because you really don't know what the whole death experience will feel like or more worried because if you come out on the other side, will there really be a judge who doesn't grade on the curve? There are people who are afraid of death because they have a very real literal judgment scene in their mind of what will happen on the other side. 
Are you concerned because you're not sure how your family would carry on without, without one of you present? And have you said that to each other? I believe this is something that women have in common, that we get a little nervous and excited and we plan your funerals, men. I've talked with a few ladies. Uh, when Kirby was in school, I had him dead several times over. And I would sit on the front steps of the house and he wouldn't come home from work and he was dead and I knew it. And so I planned his funeral. And it took me a very long time to understand when they say you're in residency, it means you don't come home until the next day or the next day. And, and that what I was working out was my fear and anxiety of having very, two very small children. And what if he doesn't come home one day? Well, really, what would happen next? And as time went on, I replanned that funeral and replanned that funeral. We moved churches, different speaker, different musicians. The School of Medicine Quartet was out one year. I'm serious. It, it, all of this worked out in my head. It is the way we begin to work on our anxieties and our unspoken fears. Gentlemen, I, I don't know exactly how you handle it. I suspect it, you haven't planned too many funerals. But I suspect you have wondered if your family would survive without financial stability that you're providing. I imagine you have wondered if your, your children, your growing children, will grow up without a father or if they'll, you'll be replaced by someone. Have you imagined your house without your spouse present if you're married? Naming and saying what it is helps to diffuse and helps to make us less anxious and nervous about what it is we think that has us so uptight. Oftentimes, the experience of grief takes the form of guilt and depression, and it takes us much longer to recover. There may be some other things you would want to name if you knew you were moving to your death tonight. Unresolved conversations, unresolved issues and relationships, things hanging on the balance. And if you find yourself in that position today, I invite you to reread this afternoon the story of Joseph and his brothers and his father's one of the most powerful forgiveness stories in our Bible, when standing in the middle of Egypt, Joseph is surrounded by all of his siblings who sold him into slavery, who forever changed his future. And, and when they recognize him, Joseph has all the power, could do whatever he wants with his family. And he says instead, I am your brother, Joseph. To whom do you need to say, I am your brother, Joseph? Naming what it is that worries us often makes the anxiety and fear less about our death. Second thought I have is that maybe we've bought into the idea the devil t t taught Eve and, and is teaching us that death is really about you and it's really about me and it's a fairly individual thing. While Eve is holding the apple, while Adam is then holding the apple, do they understand how many people are involved in this experience with them? How much is at stake? When you die, it is a circle of people around you, at the least this community, and your circle of friends, and your family, and your closest friendships. We are never in on death alone. It involves all of us. And so all of us share in the experience. I'm not sure if this is the reason why, but my father talked often about his burial. And I 
I think I've told you briefly the story, but I'm tell, I'll tell you again because it always happened on a Sabbath when he would talk about his burial. And it would always happen at the dinner table over cottage cheese loaf and mashed potatoes, and he'd be spreading his bread, and he would say, have I told you how I'm going to die? And he doesn't mean the death part. He means the burial part. Yeah, we've, we know the story, Dad. Let me tell you how this is going to happen. My mother gives him the look. And he gives her that grin and he keeps talking. This is how it's going to happen. You're going to cremate me. And when you cremate me, you're going to put me in a little container and you're all going to get in a boat. And my mother says, babe, that's his nickname. Babe, stop it. And he just looks at her and he keeps talking. You're going to get in a boat and you're going to drive up the Columbia River and you're going to go up and you're going to go up a little more. And when you get up to a certain point, you're going to stop and you'll turn the boat around. And my mother says, it is Sabbath lunch. We'll do this another time. (laughs) And when you turn the boat around, you'll drive down the river ever so slowly. While you're driving, you'll scatter my ashes out along the river. A little at a time, all the way up and down the Columbia River will be wonderful. (laughs) And the story is over and... And my father saves his best line for the last, his reasoning. Because when you've scattered me all over the Columbia River, won't it be glorious on the resurrection day when God comes? He'll have to find all my scattered parts. (laughs) And he laughed, one of those big belly laughs. Oh, God's going to have to find my legs. I'm not sure why he recited this story so frequently, if it was more than to irritate my mother. (laughs) I'll tell you what I believe it did for those of us listening, though. We know my father will die. I I think it made a a hedge there. And when he dies, we know what's going to happen to him. We will all get in a boat and drive up the Columbia River. There's, there's not a question about that. Speaking about it m- m- makes it easier when it's time to do it. So when Elder Toppenberg died, and I, I spoke with Elizabeth yesterday, and with permission, I'll tell you what we all knew, knew, those of us who went to the home, John Toppenberg, those of you who are newer, he was a former senior pastor here responsible so, for so much of the growth and success of this church. It was very clear what would happen because Elder Toppenberg had a yellow folder in his house with his name on the top that said, you know, my plans. And inside, were these were the plans to be executed. And he'd bend over to the cemetery and all the arrangements were made. And the quote from Ellen White is on the outside of the yellow folder. The funeral will be simple. The burial practices, there's to be no extravagance because he believed in what Ellen White said. No waste when it comes to burying and dying and And that is why there was not a funeral in this church when he passed away. And some of you wondered, well, well, why didn't we at least have a funeral for him? He didn't want you to. And he made his plans, his wishes known. And then when he passed, his family knew what to do. He had spoken. He was clear. I've just learned this last year where my spouse wants to be buried and how all that's to happen. And I won't be getting in a boat and going up the Columbia River. But I will be going to Disneyland. They think it's funny. 
but we have to do this, girls. <laughs> Only a pathologist can think this way. He wants to be cremated and, and then go to his favorite place. And, um, you know, behind the bushes and the shrubs, we will... <laughs> So if you ever go to Disneyland with the three of us and he's absent, you should check our pockets <laughs> for the Ziploc bags. You're never going to visit Z Disneyland again. <laughs> what it does is it puts it out there. You see? It puts it out there. So at least we're talking about it. Some of you who've lived a little longer, you've had these conversations, but a lot of us have not. So you know what your assignment is over Sabbath lunch today. <laughs> While you're eating, do you know the wishes of the people you care for? Have those been made clear? You don't have to talk about it all day, but are they known? And, and if those are already known and that's old conversation, then maybe take, take a step in a little deeper. What else is there left unresolved that you could work on today? Is there a phone call you need to make? Is there a conversation you should complete? Is it between you and God? Naming it and getting it out there with all the people involved because we are not on our own in the process of death. We are in this together, like I said last week. And finally, there is in the devil's conversation with Eve this not-so-subtle idea that God is really not the God he professed to be to you. God is really not who God says. God is really something different, and you really could exist without that God. Just try, Eve. This God is fooling you. You will not surely die. You would become like him, or maybe even better. And I wonder if we have fell to that temptation at all. When we see sickness and suffering and even death coming, if something inside of us has given into that that says, this God isn't who I thought this God was, this God wasn't here or isn't here, this God would have resolved it if the, he was who he says he was to be. I'm not sure I can trust this God. And when that happens, the devil wins. When you allow evil to put distance between you and your God, evil wins. Never forget the abundant promises in Scripture over and over. Probably the most, the most significant promise in our Bible is the idea that God does not leave us, that God ab absolutely is who God says God is, and God stays with us from Romans Chapter 8, many of you have committed this to memory. Verse 37, know in all of these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, would you all read with me right here, will be able to separate us. Read with me right there. Nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Nothing separates us in life or in death. And that isn't the continuity in everything that's taken place from the garden all the way to the kingdom consummated in heaven. Nothing separates you from that love. And don't give the devil the privilege of thinking that it has. 
As you think about moving towards death and dying, that must be an ever-present picture in your head. Or when death and dying comes, it will be a faith crisis. Nothing has separated you. Nothing will separate you. I saw this in the passion of Walter Meloshenko, who lived next door when he died last year, and Mary told the story. Walter had a stroke. She had to move him to a caregiver's home, and she would go to visit him, and he couldn't speak a lot. But when he did speak to her, he didn't want her to leave him. Don't go. I want you to stay with me, Mary. And, and he said to her one day, you know what I want you to do? I, wa- I, want, you to do, I want you to come, and, and I want to get out of this bed, and I would be on my knees on the floor, Mary. And would you give me a hammer? Put a hammer in my hand, and I'm going to build you a room right here. And I'm going to build you a bed so you never leave me again. And we'll be right side by side together. That is a picture of your God. That is a picture of your passionate God. And I saw it one more way this week. I'll close. In a basketball game in the gym at Redlands Academy. While the girls were playing. And for some reason, girls basketball gets a little more violent. (laughs) I chose not to say dramatic. And there was an injury on the floor. And everything moved in slow motion for me at that point as a parent because we don't know who's wounded. And so you're looking to see what's happened and who's gone down. And, and then it gets more serious because the referee calls the, the game out of the game's over, puts every, sends everybody to the bench. Now we know it's serious because that rarely happens. And pretty soon we can see blood. We see blood on towels. We see blood on people's hands. Somebody really is hurt. And I'm wondering who is. I finally can see who's gone down. And I know it's not my child, but you know you love all these kids like almost like they should be coming home with you anyway, most of them. And... Uh, And the others I pray to love. (laughs) And she's down and she's a mess. And and before I can even think, I see people running out and there's a paramedic kit that's gone out to her. And all the coaching staff have emptied the benches. Everyone's run to her. and, And some moms and some parents have come and gathered all the way around her. And all I can think is she's hurt. She really needs somebody to get out there and help her. And I turn to my spouse to hit him on the leg. You, you should get out there and help her. They probably need some help. And when I turn to hit him, he was not there. And I looked, and out in the middle of all the people, he was crouched down on his knees. He was the one wiping the blood off her forehead, applying the pressure, deciding what it was, opening up the kit. I don't even know when that happened. One second, split second, he was gone and attending tragedy. And I thought later, my goodness, is that not what it's like with our God? Before you can call. Before you could even ask for God to come attend you in your tragedy, dispatched and gone and there on the job. We must never let the devil think, convince us that it's otherwise. Dying well, what does it look like? Looks like people who are willing to talk about death. People who are willing to say this species dies 
Dying well is people who are willing to say, and we're all in this together, and when I die, it hurts you, and when you die, it hurts me, and can we name some of those things? Dying well means we never forget about this God of compassion who's way out in front of our request to assist us in tragedy, who's built a bed right beside us and moved in, says, you can't ever, you couldn't kick me out. That's where the hope comes from, why we sing that song. We have this hope because we have that kind of God.